All right, everybody, this is Sunrise as usual. Before we get started with the show, I want to remind everybody that we've got a Patreon now, right? So like we're big time to some degree and we want to be even bigger, right? You can get us there. Uh, if you're listening to the show, you're dependent on us and we're dependent on you. So please support us if you can so that we can bring you these episodes every week. It takes a lot of work and our team would really appreciate some form of compensation when we give it to them. So otherwise it's all a labor of love. Not that we don't love it if we're getting paid. No, anyway, but head on over to the Patreon. It's patreon.com slash real indigenous podcast. So check that out if you want to support us and you can see all those tiers that we've got and all the stuff that we are obligated to do if you do so. Some of it's cool. So or I would I would think it's cool if I were you, uh, except for the stuff that I get to deliver on, I guess. Okay, well, welcome to the Real Indigenous Podcast. Real Indigenous, where we take a look at everything on our screens and everything in between. Um, and like usual, we got our usual suspects here. I'll let them introduce themselves. Uh, we'll start with Angela. Angela. Hey, everyone. Monica Brain in the house. Candice Birdboni here. And we are here with our guest, a multi-talented individual from Indian country out here in Oklahoma. Had the privilege of watching him work a couple times. And of course, we're probably all very familiar with all his different kinds of areas of work. He's the co-founder of Buffalo Nickel Creative. He's a originating member of the 1491s. And he's recently delivered some great work. He's got a short film, Dead Bird Hearts. He's got an N7 uh, campaign that he can talk about. And of course, he's done a lot of writing and he's on screen in Reservation Dogs. Let's give a round of applause to Mr. Ryan Redcorn. Yeah. So, yeah. The applause. <laughs> applause. Uh, what's up, everyone? Thanks. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah. Thanks. We were, we were hoping this would happen a long time ago. The strikes got in the way and uh, we're so glad that you could be here. You are, uh, some sort of guild or union member, right? Yeah, I am a W card carrying WGA uh, member in good standing. Yes, that's or whatever. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I paid my dues. Yeah, you paid 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 your Bobby dues. You paid uh, my Bobby dues. Yeah. Well, you got you got a lot of stuff that you've been doing. You know, you're prolific just in general. But right now, it seems like you got a lot of stuff out in the air. Um, let's hear a little bit about the film first the short film dead bird hearts that thing's been traveling around yeah it's it's been traveling it's a it was it was a fun little fun little project you know i i i paid for a lot of that with my own money because there's just not a lot of uh money out there to make indigenous films with talking animals kind of low on the list so i just was like you know what tired of waiting around on somebody else to do this we're just gonna I have all the gear. I know all the people like, let's just, we're going to just going to go ahead and do this. And, uh, so we did, we just took three days and in January in Oklahoma and just went out and had a good old time. Not long after filming wrapped with killers of the flower moon. So we were like doing the exact opposite. We were just being irreverent and weird in the woods. And I think that's what we needed. <laughs> it sounds like you had to, do it on your own terms was there like a before all that was there any need to like wait for other resources or something you're you're talking about how you um, kind of like just punked it a little bit but yeah i you know i think in my mind 
I thought, okay, well, let me get some like arts funding or some donations or, you know, there's various other ways that short films are made. But having gone to some film festivals and seeing what's in most film festivals, I don't get me wrong. I love film festivals. I love them, but they can be really depressing. And the artists in general can be depressing. And uh, when you get a whole bunch of them together, they can just be sad together or they'll be really happy and pretend they're not sad for a moment. Or they're just happy to like have their own community. But I think so much of us, because this, you know, our community is so small, there's long periods of time where we're working in isolation. And, you know, I, I've done that in the past where I just, you know, I don't like to wait around for something else to happen so that I can do something. Uh, I'll just go do it. That's that's been a recurring theme. I did that with photography. We did that with the 1491s. I did that with my company. Like, there's no reason that a full service ad agency should exist in a town of 3,500 people. That's not a thing. It's not like towns of 3,500 people do not support full service ad agencies. But, you know, so what? You just figure it out. Just figure it out. Could you talk a little bit about that then, like setting up a business? How long have you had that running? It's kind of a matter of circumstance. Let me let me say there are several things that allowed me to be privileged in that space. One of which is that my grandparents were entrepreneurs, both sets of grandparents. I have one set of grandparents on my mom's side who works in the oil and gas industry. Even her own grandmother, there's another business that they ran, which was an in, interior design business. There was a, there was, and then on my other side, my Grandparents on my dad's side, they ran a restaurant in Pahuska there for a long time, native food restaurant. And uh, my dad also ran a bathroom remodeling company. So I had a lot of people in my family in, that I could just ask. I mean, that was normal to me to see kind of entrepreneurial uh, people. And having that in my back pocket, I went to school with the intent of graduating and getting a job. I sent out my resume all over. I only got um, one interview and that guy didn't even hire me. And so um, I was just you know, like, I think I was replacing windowsills one day. I was, I was working as a carpenter. I did that all through college, which allowed me to not take out student loans, which was another advantage to like starting my own company. Cause I didn't, I graduated with no debt. It took me a long time. It took me six and a half years to get a four year degree, but I graduated with no debt. And um, when I did that, I was sitting there, I was working as a carpenter and I was thinking, I was after I did that interview and I didn't get hired, I was thinking, well, hold on a second. Like I got this graphic design degree. I, I'm supposed to be able to do this skill. The skill is supposed to be worth this amount of money. What do I need a boss for? Like, and so I started, I, and I had already been doing more freelance work than homework at school, um, which didn't help my GPA at all, but I just kept doing that. And then I started a political t-shirt company called Democrates. And that kind of blew up like really, really fast around 2004, the lead up to the election and the Iraq war. And people were just really, really mad. And they were so mad they bought t-shirts <laughs> and they bought a lot of them from me. And um, I kind of around that time that I moved back to Oklahoma, I continued to do that, but it kind of laid the groundwork for starting, like expanding to larger branding operations, a silkscreen operation, uh, 
And then there's a guy that I've been working with building websites and we eventually just went all in together on the screen print side and then just grew that into the branding agency that I have now, which is called Buffalo Nickel Creative. So that's the, and then that's, that was just me and him and one other guy for a little bit. And I think now we have seven or eight employees and, you know, a whole list of contractors that we call upon for some bigger jobs and stuff like that. So I've watched that business grow year after year uh, since 2007. Been impressive to see it grow. It's it hadn't, it hadn't been easy. I mean, the, taking a lot of stuff on the chin where you you think this is supposed to be the thing that you're supposed to be doing, but really you have to spend so much other time doing other parts of the business that are not related to the actual like work or quality of the work. So it's you know finding a balance and like for this for that kind of job you never want to for any job really you never want to be I guess okay with the skill level that you're at. So always like trying to advance the skill levels of our employees and myself at the mm -hmm. same time. And that's made us like really competitive and it's made us uh, kind of level up with our clientele over the years. And, you know, some of our, our long-term clients, they really kind of, I think they appreciate that kind of attitude towards their stuff when they hire us. I first became familiar with your work when you were in Barking Water, but I think my favorite story is when you were the MC for Fancy Dance <laughs> during the overnight shoot that we did at First Americans Museum. Because that was, I mean, you were, we were literally doing a powwow. Now, did you have to improv all of that stuff or? How... Pretty much. Yeah. There was, a, there was a script that they gave me. The funnier part about that is, well, there's a lot of funny parts about that. So, <laughs> The 1491s have a video called video series called Power MCs, Day in the Life of the Power MC. And those videos were like pretty popular. They were so popular that even though I was actually sick, like on the ground while they were filming that, I'm not even in the video. But the video was so popular that I had this proximity, this association with being a Power MC. And I got asked to be a Power MC, like for real. And it's happened multiple times. Like I've emceed multiple powwows and um, I was shooting a deal. We shot a, a take action film for Paramount plus on the Keystone XL pipeline. And um, it was when the, uh, there was a case going before the Supreme court for, for Belknap. Anyway, we were up there and right before we were coming up there, they had a, they had a, a youth death in the community that was pretty tragic. And they had asked me that they wanted me, they knew I was coming into town. They knew about the 1491s and they wanted me to do stand up at the powwow. And I was like, ah, that sounds dumb. If I was at a powwow and I saw stand up, I would be like, this is the dumbest. Like, what, what is this? So I didn't tell them it was dumb, uh, but that's what I was thinking. And I talked to the other people that we were going up there with. And I suggested that instead of doing that, we host uh, three specials. So we did this, I think we called it Come and Get Your Love, the Come and Get Your Love specials. So we did a potato dance, a two-step, and a clown dance or switch dance. I can't remember. It was one of the two. But we did three specials like back-to-back. -back. And I'm up there. I'm supposed to be directing this thing and filming it. We were just supposed to like host a special. But I literally had a camera in my hand trying to film everything. And the MC that was there calls me over there and hands me the microphone and has me 
MC the three specials and he just leaves. And so during golden hour, when I'm supposed to be filming this, this dance, which is the culmination of the whole piece, I'm sitting there emceeing this dance for, you know, the entirety of golden hour is it was every, every bit of 40 minutes of the most beautiful light and the most beautiful conditions with the most beautiful people that you could possibly ever, ever get. I actually, in, in the end of that video, I used every, almost every last frame that I used right up to the point that I got called over there. And um, I emceed the dance. The one of the producers that was there was Heather Ray and she saw me emcee the dance. And so when, um, you know, when she was helping Erica put this together, uh, my name came up because <laughs> she saw me be a MC. So I went from like not even being a fake MC to being <laughs> a real MC back to being a fake MC. And then when I got there, uh, they just had me MC like it was a real power that there's just people there and there was like kind of a schedule. So there was some filming that was happening there. And then they just left for a little bit. And I'm just like chilling with like 40 or 50 dancers. So I just started running specials and doing raffles and um the raffles were know. hilarious. Like, they were just yeah. like <laughs> we were looking at each other like, wait, is this a film set or wait, where are we? No, it's, the it's just the me. And I'm exhausted. The film, the cameras are gone. The cameras are gone. It's in the middle of the night. I, I'm I have like very I've been given very little direction. Uh, because you know, they're they have to other there's other scenes that they need to take care of that are in the parking lot. Um, so yeah, I they just cut me loose. I was unsupervised. Yeah. Uh and that's what happens. <laughs> when you if what I'm I'm just a child, I'm just a grown child. If I'm left unsupervised, then it's sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not good. It could be a disaster, but uh, I, yeah, I just started picking on people. I even saw it when I was a head man at the Cherokee Power this last year. I actually saw the dude who I nicknamed Goat Yate. <laughs> there was a, there was a guy who was sitting at the drum, and uh, I don't even remember how I got on this, but there he was like, I went on something, some kind of rant where I ended up talking about goats for way, way too long. <laughs> and then he yelled out from the drum that he was like Oglala or something. And I was like, oh, you're, uh, we will call you Goat Yate. And he was still, and so when I seen him at Cherokee, he was, he's, he's still going by Goat Yate. <laughs> and that's, that poor kid is going to, it's going to follow him around for the rest of his life. I don't even know his real name. I did. I feel embarrassed about that, but he's Goat Yate from here on out. And all the other singers that were at that drum, because that drum was actually the same drum that was in Echo like three weeks before when in Dallas emceed that powwow scene. And he had the same thing. They gave him an overnight deal. And and, uh, I had talked to him like two days. No, I talked to him like the day after that. We figured out that we had the same same drum. So I'm sure Goat Yate was there as well. So do you have formal improv training or you guys, did, did this all come from the 1491's trial by fire type stuff? I would say it comes from uh, bullshit. Like in my bio, I, my bio that I've, I've like very intentionally, if you get a chance to read my bio, uh, the reservation dogs PR team asked me for a bio when I got signed on. 
and I have this theory about bios that nobody ever reads them. So I I wrote the bio as if nobody was going to read it, and just for the sole um, social experiment of seeing how many times somebody will copy and paste this ridiculous bio without reading it and just not even think nothing of it. And at the beginning of that bio, it says that I was born in Tahlequah, Oklahoma to a family of preachers, politicians, and salesmen who were all the, pretty much the same thing. And um, that's the truth. And I think like being surrounded by preachers, politicians, and salesmen, you develop the ability to just bullshit. And I used that skill. It's, you know, part of it is like, you know, just taking the available information you have and extrapolating out from whatever's there. And I was not a very good student. And I would habitually take these tests from teachers and I would read the test and I would glean as much information as I could from the test. And then I could get a C <laughs> based off of the answers that they inadvertently gave away in the questions. Um, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> I went way off. Improv. Uh, oh, it was improv. The improv. That's okay. Improv, the power of the power of bullshit. I was see. I was bullshitting there and um got caught. Ran out of steam. Um no. I I was also I was also uh I did music for a long time, and uh so you get comfortable. Like I did student leadership and when I was in college and you know wrestling team stuff and you you get caught in certain situations where. I don't know. I have a, I have a knack for habitually being put into situations where I have no expertise no, and don't know anything. I will I will wander in a room and pretend like I know what I'm doing. And uh, you know, you do that for so long, and you just build up enough gray matter where you can just uh, make up whatever. And eventually, like the very last iterations of the 1491 show. We were we were traveling around and we we stopped doing the skits and we we would go into a town we'd spend about a hundred and fifty dollars buying knickknack bullcrap like junk and then we'd take a blanket and lay it out and we put all this stuff on it and we did these shows called Ask an Indian and we just like sat there like sitting ducks and we let the crowd ask us anything we want and it was up to the crowd to discern when we were giving like truthful answers or absolute bullshit or in the bullshit we're tipping our hat to what the truth was and it was you know it was very interactive and uh fun it was just another version for us to test you know test that kind of stuff out but i have no absolute no formal training i i the closest thing i could give you is uh being a point guard on a basketball team like basketball there's a lot of improvisation in basketball there's a lot in wrestling and uh, even football, when I used to play football, I had to return punts and kicks sometimes. And that's like dodging missiles. You'd really have to just act and think about the consequences of whatever you did later. I don't know. I don't think there's like one thing that I could point to, but I am surrounded by bullshitters. Does that to make it day. hard to does that make it hard to transition to writing a play like between two knees or something that's very formalized like writing for disney hulu you know you you lose that ability to kind of do it off the cuff when you move into those different styles not really i feel like when you're writing you're making drafts of bullshit like you get 
you get second, third, and fourth, and fifth chances to improv your bullshit. The thing that makes it hard is that when you're in that headspace like all the time, and then you have to do a thing like therapy where you have to shut it off, <laughs> then, then it becomes difficult. That's way harder than <laughs> improv. I mean, you're, I mean, cause you could improv. I mean, and I think people do, they improv and they lie in therapy, but I, my, the, the analytical part of my brain takes over and I'm like, that's a waste of time. Why would you do that? I don't have enough time to bullshit for that. It's like, let's figure this out. Come on. What are we doing? So much harder to shut off there. And like, you know, you can't use humor to deflect your therapist. It's not an effective strategy. <laughs> no, they they're wise to that one. Yeah. Uh-uh. Let's see that coming from you telegraphing it. Yeah. <laughs> I I would say like once a session, mine is like, are we deflecting? Do we want to move on from that? <laughs> I've I finally gotten I I feel like I've, you know, you do this, you do this enough and you, there is there is some ability that you do I I feel like I do learn to control it. But there's a certain combination of people that I'm around, like Dallas, Sterling, Bobby, and Migazy. Like whatever it is about that group, it's the the mixture of our five personalities bring out that clown. And uh, it like I even in the writers' room, I I already know that I know that about our group. I know that about us, and I know how we like stoke a little fire and build it. I know all of those things, but we're not the only ones in the room. There's 10 of us and I'm trying, <laughs> trying so hard not to like, just let that whole thing just, you know, do what it always wants to do. And I'm trying to be respectful of everybody else's time too, but it's very difficult. Whatever it is about that, it's very combustible. You learn to speak your own little language, right? So you, you yeah, but it was like that from the very beginning. Like there was not a, it was not really like an awkward, hey, uh, I have an idea. Uh, I don't know if you're really into this. It's just like whatever it is about the mixture of us five together, it that it just a it just brings out the I would say worst in us, but it's like the worst, the best worst parts of this. Because we're all there to like keep each other kind of in check and that kind of stuff. We never really like it totally out of hand, but our group chat is insane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah probably our group chat is probably why all of us are in therapy <laughs> uh, and, all, one, and all of it started truth. because of twilight right i would say twilight but twilight was just you know it was just the what card got pulled during that that specific weekend it could have been anything we had already seen our fill of embarrassing indigenous related film and you know, I feel like the group was responding to that and Twilight just happened to be what was in the in, on the carousel at the time. So it's any any number of things which could have driven driven that. Yeah, I recently it was not too long ago because I completely I forgot that you did this <laughs> where you did a <laughs> lip singing version of the 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 Cherokees, you know, walking yeah. on the trail of and uh, I had just I had forgotten about that, and um, it came up because you know my husband Roy, like he loves he loves music, he loves heavy metal, he loves metal, all kinds of classic rock, and it got brought up in conversation, and I was like, you know what, I I haven't watched that video in a very very long time, and so I just brought it up just for funsies, and 
I remember like stumbling on the 1491s when I was in grad school and I was uh, studying I was studying theater and I was looking at representation of native people in theater and in film and in entertainment in general and that just happened to be when the Washington um you know or you know what we're no longer known as that anymore oh that was that was coming on that was coming on a, a late night talk show and I uh I remember at the time like and still like how deeply impactful like that work was just on me as a native student and how deeply impactful it was for our communities. Like, and uh, I wonder, I don't know. I, I, I wonder about that journey. Like here we are and here you are now. And now the clown is on display to see for everyone to enjoy and partake. And I wonder like, how do you look at like those those last, I don't know, how long has it been? Has it been, I, I don't want to say 10 years, but I'll say a little less than 10 years. Like, what do you think of that, that journey? And like, like, what do you think of that? Um, It's pretty awesome. I mean, some of the like simplest things that made it, I feel like made it really impactful were, you know, we were um, times we were on campuses or messages that we got. And I know this continued with res dogs. It didn't, it didn't stop when 1491s kind of transitioned to res dogs, but we would get these messages and we still get them, like I said, from college students. And so many times on campuses, native students are so far away from home. They're, they're in isolation. Not everybody's fortunate enough to go to school kind of closer to home or, or within, within a reasonable distance where they, they still can maintain their link to their community and ceremonial schedule and things of that nature. And what those kids would say I call them kids, but they're, they're adults. They would say just how grateful they were because they would be in really depressive, like lonely states. And it, when they got there, they would sit down and they would just binge watch all of our videos. And like, that's what helped them kind of get through. And that's only possible because we did it for so long. And there's so many videos. There's so many stupid jokes and just like the willingness to just kind of go for it. Like, I mean, there's like not a lot of, wasn't a lot of like thought given to the quality of it. There wasn't a lot of thought given to like, oh, does this embarrass me? I mean, I, like my motivations to that were very much tied, had been tied to that idea for a long time. When I was up in Lawrence, I fronted a metal band, which is why when that idea came up to do the, that music video, I was like, guys, this isn't up for debate. Like I'm the, I'm the front man for this because even in the metal band that I was in, we clowned other metal bands. Like that was my 1491s before that group. And um, I had a lot of fun doing that. But in that scene, you're also interacting with a lot of people who are in at odds with their parents or at odds with their community at odds with their, you know, uh, how society perceives their gender or their sexuality. You go on down the list, there's a, there's a long, long list of reasons that people find community in the metal and hardcore scene and the punk scene. And, and I was in, I was interacting with those kids at the end of all through at the end of high school and then all through college. And then because of that interaction, I was very familiar with that stage dynamic. I was familiar with why people like psychologically, like why do they come to those shows? 
what do they want out of it? And I was wanting the same thing too. I had lost, I lost my mom and my grandpa and my grandma within like five years. And it was very much like that community in combination with our own Osage community that really like facilitated me coming through that the other side without hurting myself, without hurting other people, without causing, you know, just damage in the way that when people are hurting the way they can easily damage other people. So the 1491s felt like an extension of that work and an extension of that kind of, uh, I don't know, you're like really spreading joy and just the idea of connecting to people or finding different ways to connect. Like the metal band, you're connecting through a shared rage. Even if you have, you don't have the emotional aptitude to like give it a name. And through the 1491s, there's also a shared rage. But I had, in that venue, we had decided to spend our energy trying to make an antidote for it. So it's not about leaning into it. It's about like, let's create this, let's like cultivate joy, like with, with intention like cultivating joy and happiness and so much of the media, indigenous media that we were, I don't know, a lot of the stuff that was getting made by us, sometimes the stuff that's being made about us, it really didn't have that component. And the clown in me and the metalhead in me wanted always, I always want to do the exact opposite. Uh, I think they call that oppositional defiance disorder, <laughs> whatever that is. You just take <laughs> that and apply it to uh comedy you know you're like figure out like you know what and you, and the messed up part is what makes it even worse is then you get rewarded for it you get rewarded for not doing what you're supposed to do and and then we just you just keep doing it like i i've told this story before but when we did the Wolfpack auditions wilson pipestem called me and told me uh ryan 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 some things can never be undone he's want me to run for office you know but uh you know i feel like in that moment one of the very few moments that i will ever say that i knew something that wilson pipes them didn't know and i knew that this was this like that type of content and that type of happiness and joy was like missing and people wanted it and people needed it because we wanted it and needed it and um you know it's something a little bit more substantial than just fry bread jokes it's like that you get to the humanity of the joke, you know, I won't call it like more sophisticated, but I don't know. I'll let, I'll let the academics figure out how they want to describe it. But I feel like it was the closer representation to how people joke in our community. Can you talk a little bit about, just to get back to the, the film, is there any of this that's finds its way into the film? Because I mean, it is also funny and it's also seemed to be not like anything else that's out there right now. And it seems to be a lot of joy sometimes. Yeah. So I've watched a lot of short films. Like it, a lot of times, like I will very intentionally just get on Vimeo and I just want to go through and watch short films. And I also know from doing this for so long, I know how much money these things cost. I know how much time it costs. I know how much emotional labor you have to do to bring a project from the front all the way to the across the finish line knowing all that it would have been very easy for me i feel like to do something that was a little bit lower hanging fruit and that would have been like you know you build an implicit bias you just do like some really like basic short film structure 
stuff and and maybe pick something easy that is that you can get through front to back that is not complicated to understand as a viewer and it's it doesn't really uh, push yourself as a filmmaker but I was like you know what if I'm going to spend all this time energy and money on this I'm going to try to do something that was really hard and that is like I want to make a character that has almost no likable redeemable qualities about him whatsoever and I want to just try to get the audience to a point of they don't have to like this dude but I want to get I want to get him to a point of them understanding why he's like the way that he is and give him the grace to make the one small character change that he did at the end of the film which is go back into town and I want to do it in a weird way I want to do it in a way that's not really linear there's a lot of uh I took a lot of inspiration from traditional Osage stories and tried to apply them to uh, a contemporary landscape and you know I feel like I could if I had to go redo it there's things that I would definitely change but I knew in the process of doing it that I would look the things that I would learn trying to do something that I had no idea how to do would be more valuable than doing something that I already knew how to do. Like as a business owner and just as a, just a general ethos, one of the things that I think is the most powerful thing that you can do is give somebody a chance to fail. And so for myself, I, I tell my employees that too, like people that come work for me, I like, I will, I'm intentionally going to give you opportunities to fail. Like I'm not here to hold your hand and, and the moments in which people have given me opportunities to fail, then I feel like that's when I'm able to like recognize that moment. And then I know in that moment, like I need to do 150% for this. So, you know, Sterling asking a bunch of people with previous no Hollywood experience, not WGA members that goes from like people that are on the crew people that are in their writer's room, you know, just up and down the roster. You can look at moments where he allowed people the chance to fail. And um, I, I revel in those moments. Like I, cause, cause every, I feel like every time I've been given that opportunity to fail, that's when I was able to perform at the level that I needed to above what the expectation was. And one of the things that happened in that was uh, in season one, before I was even in the writer's room, I got asked to do the billboard photography for the show, the key art. And um, it wasn't the very first like large scale, large scale photography like thing that I've had to do, but it was definitely like probably the highest profile. And because of that opportunity, uh, there was a lot of learning there. There was some deferring that I did. Uh, to the people that I was working with. And then when those things didn't work, I just had to have a conversation like, hey, uh, this is going to be on my ass. So like, here's what we're going to do. And that ended up being um, what was the key art for season one. Because we had a tornado rolling in that day. While the, that, you know, that final episode, the final episode was about a tornado. There was an actual tornado warning that we were under uh, while all that was occurring. And that opportunity uh, led to, you know, I ended up doing the key art for season two and season three and uh, sunrise. You, you were, you were there. We were on our crew. We shot the Nike stuff. That was the second time we had done that. 
And uh, because of that stuff, there was there's another national brand that I shot right after that. And because of that one, I had a meeting last week from another brand that's asked to hire hire out. And so like in every one of those instances, even while you're there, there's plenty of opportunity to fail. There's any production is bound to have stuff happen that was not supposed to happen. And, you know, the ability to, I don't even know if that's called improv. I think it's just called like making decisions like really fast. <laughs> I mean, you can call it improv, but at a certain level when the scale, when everything is like scaled up at some point, it's just like, no, this is, this is what we have to do. This is how long we have to do it. This is the variables that we have. Da, 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 da. This is how it's going to happen. And like, if it doesn't work, I'll, I'll take the hit on it, but we cannot sit here and wait anymore. We got to go. And I think you have, that's like a, one of the definite absolute skills that you have to have. But when you're in that space, if you've done that, or even if you haven't done it, but you had to be in situations that are high pressure like that, and you've had to make those kind of decisions, like that type of, um, I guess, confidence or whatever you want to call it, uh, it definitely like permeates the rest of the crew. Like if I look like I don't know what I'm doing and I'm struggling, then that's going to affect every everything else on there. And so, you know, my proficiency with the camera uh, is the thing that's like already been taken care of. It's all the other things that you have to be able to adapt to. And and when you're in those situations, I think like people have trusted you to do something. And at some at a certain point, there is lenience there. You never know if you're going to have like some kind of a sociopath over you or anything like that. But you, if you have their trust and they know that you are going to do the absolute best that you can in that given situation, then that's what it is. And and Osei just say that they say Washcon. Candace knows that they say Washcon, and it it translates to do your best. But it's kind of like it's a little bit bigger than that. It's kind of like um this attitude of like if you did your best and you put everything that you could all that you had into any given situation and that's what you did that's what you can control and it didn't work out then that's okay you did the absolute best you didn't you didn't hold back it's like a you don't hold anything back you didn't save anything for another day you put it all out there and you did your absolute best that's the version of that it's the it's a die with your boots on thing if you did your absolute best then then that's all there is and you can learn to live with however however it is after that and you know if you take that attitude and apply it to pretty much anything you're working on it it will serve you and it will serve the people that are around you and you'll attract people that have that same type of attitude you kind of shifted into talking about n7 that whole campaign was both stills and video was that the first um, can you talk about just bouncing those two things? No, I was, wasn't was a first. That was the second time we've done a Nike campaign like that. I, I've been in situations where uh, a producer may not think that that's possible because they haven't seen it before. But we started out, you know, when Buffalo Nickel started out, it's just me. It's just me. And I had to go to locations and do these little campaigns and so i gotta take stills for the posters and i gotta make a little video 
for the website, I got to do both. I was using the same camera, you know, and, uh, you know, those are like backpack days where you can, you put all that in a backpack and then had another case full of lights. And, um, you know, I, I feel comfortable doing both and I've been doing both for so long that even when the stakes are like really, really high, all the muscle memory of, and the improv of like, even if, even if I didn't even have a, a let's say for example, like due to a client schedule or whatever, or some un like factors you can't control, the schedule gets blowed up and you have to rearrange the schedule and you don't even have time to go back to your computer to write it down. You have to like literally sequence all that stuff in your brain and then just go out there and, and conduct the orchestra. And if you've done that enough, then you can walk into it. And it's not just you by yourself walking into it. You've done it enough that you've identified the people that should be on your team that can competently handle the stuff that you're handling and like, and allows you to do that, allows you to move fluidly between those two things. It's not easy. I wouldn't say it's easy work, but in a lot of situations where uh, the amount of money that you needed, the correct amount of money you needed to do something sometimes isn't always there. And, uh, or the talent that you need to fill that for that specific kind of photography or specific kind of directing might not be there. So, you know, pick your team smart. And even in those moments, like uh, Sunrise, when you were on that squad, like we have other people that are younger that were there. And in those little brief moments in between uh, the times where I'm being occupied, I'm like coaching some of the younger people into like, uh, use this camera in this situation and, you know, put on these settings and I'm going to cut you loose with it. Like all of that's a, a, a learning experience. Like you just, to shoot, 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 and then review your footage and shoot, 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 and review your footage. And somewhere in there, you'll figure out like what you like, what's working, what's not working. And you do it enough times and it starts to become innate and hopefully good. <laughs> it seems like it's good. <laughs> hopefully it's good. <laughs> I got bills to pay. <laughs> Are you comfortable talking about like the, the the technology you're using, like what cameras and stuff? Yeah. For anybody that's listening and interested. So for the for the N7 shoot, there was a lot of different cameras being used, and the reason there was a lot of different cameras being used is because, well, one, there was a specific look that Nike wanted for the piece. They like a a gritty, like kind of raw, more analog feel to it. Um, they didn't want a lot of uh, like highly polished um, flash, you know, cultivate like flash sculpted, light sculpted type of work. So that dictates some of the camera stuff. Uh, we used a Fuji one, a GFX 150 for a lot of the, the main stuff. We used a Canon R that was a double, that camera did double duty. So um, because we had limited time with the athletes, I, had a tech set that camera to burst and I would just do um, two to three second bursts because that camera can shoot 25 frames in a second. So to set it to that and just bursted through motion and I can double that up for video. I also used a Leica Q2 monochrome, which worked beautifully in that situation. It's very, it's a very, very beautiful camera. It has a 
amazing piece of glass on it and it works so good in low light um where you know i can put it on like 6400 iso and not have any grain at all and set my uh you know i think there's a picture of lindy dunking that i got i could set the f-stop or the, the shutter speed at about a thousandth of a second and still not have any grain on an indoor gym with almost all the lights turned off and that's like one of the cameras that can do that it's a short list on the motion side we shot some with the fx30 we shot some with the fx6 we shot some with the red komodo and even some with the little osmo action cams and i think even a little bit with the pocket osmo if i'm not mistaken so it was a, and 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 the type of treatment that nike wanted on that it, they wanted to be able to change pace with the cameras and different look we even used a an analog polaroid camera for some of it as well so and but I had my Hasselblad X1D as the backup, which is what I shoot all my portraits with, the mostly the big, the bigger, larger 10-foot portraits. Um, but that camera requires a lot of light, and it is slow. It is clumsy, but it's very like deliberate, surgical type of camera. The uh, the GFX 150, you can shoot a lot faster, and it moves a lot faster. It's helpful. Nerd stuff. Nerd stuff. Nerd stuff. So somebody out there is going to take all that stuff now. Well, they can out. take it. I'll tell you, here's the, here's the best thing to take from it is that I learned the most from YouTube. I, uh, pro photo did a campaign called the world is my studio. And I went through every single video in that campaign and I found the photographers whose stuff I liked. And then I paused it on the behind the scenes and I went through and I looked at every single light modifier that they had, yeah, right, and yeah. every single type of flash that they had, and what the arrangement was. And then I just went out and bought that equipment and just started trying to figure it out. But that's straight. And then other people too on YouTube. I mean, like YouTube is such a resource. I did photography in college. I did a lot of darkroom stuff, but we didn't use uh, flashes at all. So, yeah. Yeah, that's that's the same thing I would do. I just like look at the behind the scenes of movies and American cinematographer or whatever. Same thing. Just look at yeah. what the stuff is. What is the object? And, yeah. I mean, um, even um, even for lighting for film, just trying to, you know, for film, a lot of times you're trying to light in a way that makes the light not a character. Mm -hmm. you're, if you did a really, really good job, uh, <laughs> then then nobody will notice. And so when we were, we were getting ready to shoot uh, Dead Bird Hearts, my DP, who you met, uh, Justin, Justin Hong, mm -hmm. he was like, "What's what are we going for here? And I said, uh, no country for Michelle Gondry. And he was like, <laughs> he said, Roger Deakins had a million and a half dollar lighting budget. I, I was like, I know, I know. I'm not, we don't have that. So you figure it out, you know? So a lot of the times in the lighting for that, we used primarily an eight by eight bounce sure yeah it was our yeah. that was the main thing that we and it was very it's very similar to uh, a lot of the res dog stuff how the res dog stuff is shot yeah simple yeah it, it, it that's the thing about lighting is if you can really overcomplicate it and a lot of times when i am using flashes what i will do is i will absolutely blast light from one side and then i will use a series of my secret sauce Home Depot insulation 
the silver Home Depot insulation because yeah. I could break it into smaller sizes and I will I will create a way to like funnel and bounce the light until until I get what I want. That's a lot easier to do with one light that you're bouncing as opposed to multiple sources. Multiple. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Well, now that we got through the uh, the the deep geek there, does anybody else have a last question for him? Uh, let's throw it over to Angela because she always has a great way to wrap things up, I think. Well, thanks for joining us. And I always ask our interviewees a couple of questions. The first one is, what are you reading or watching or listening to or consuming in some way that is inspiring you right now? Oh, man. I'm reading a book called The Tender Parts. It's really good. Kind of really good. I don't know. I haven't decided yet. It kind of makes me uncomfortable sometimes but I'm sticking with it uh, and trying to understand, trying to just kind of use it more conceptually. I do read a lot of books like that, not only for myself, but it, they help me uh, with my writing when you're trying to understand a character. I'm watching uh, BoJack Horseman. What else? Get to go to Thunder basketball games again now. I'm still building my house. So that occupies a lot of my time. I don't get to, I haven't had the amount of reading and writing time that I would like because I'm constructing a home. <laughs> <laughs> I, I built a, uh, I built an oak staircase last week. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. From scratch. Uh, I wouldn't call it scratch. I mean, I went to the Lowe's and got the red oak. I didn't uh, cut, okay. it, cut it down and plane it myself. Uh, no, no, I didn't do that, but I did cut it to the correct size and then nail it together. <laughs> And you know, built my stairs. They're not there. I have to really still do the platforms. Yeah. What else? It sounds like there's uh, very little improv in that that whole process of building a house. <laughs> no. Th well, there, well it, there is and there isn't because there's <laughs> like you know I've I did a lot of construction before, but I never built stairs. I never had to build stairs. I was mostly repairing other people's like bad work or bad choice of materials, laying tile or laid wood floors or roofed a lot of that kind of stuff but uh for some reason never stairs stairs are usually always built and then once they're built you never have to go back and like redo stairs it's not like a thing like oh yeah i was at this house and the stairs failed let me go back and uh <laughs> better call the stair repair man <laughs> Yeah, if, if you've if you if you're in a house where the stairs have failed, then a, so many things have gone wrong mm. in your life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> this sounds metaphorical now instead of literal. <laughs> well, maybe it is. Maybe it is. <laughs> well, our la my last question is: What advice would you give your younger self? Mm. It's a tough one because I feel like. There's part of me that would say, thanks to the industry that I get to work in, that my younger self has not had to hide in the way that maybe your younger self has to hide in other professions. There is so much play that I get to do in my work, in my job job, and then as a father now that just transitions into getting to play with my kids. I would probably just tell my younger self that 
there's going to be a lot of really horrible things that are going to happen and they're going to make you really, really, really pissed off at the world, at people that you know, at everything. And that if you just stick with what you're doing, that that thing will be the thing that will bring you out on the other side of it. And I mean, there's from that time period in my life, there's so much that's been that has been thankfully consistent. And that is like our ceremonial schedule at home. I was I'm fortunate enough to be placed into that at a very, very young age. And my family was supportive in a way that made sure that I was able to get in there every single year for every single dance that's been absolutely like one of the most stabilizing things in my life just because the volume of of uh the volume of very useful life advice and life habits that I've been able to derive from that space just as a as a young boy as a young man and as a man that structure is like really designed to develop young boys into Osage leaders like across the board and it's been so consistent and it, it, that space has been so good to me um and it that that space literally translates to the playground of the oldest son I'm the oldest son and so that kind of attitude I've been able to like take out of that space and apply it to so many other aspects of my life where play and joy and fun were central to being alive and um so i would just tell my younger self to just stick with that stay with it stay close to it listen close you know it's already been late they always say it's already been there you just got to follow it and so that's what i feel like i did and it i've been rewarded for it handsomely in so many different ways wise words from yourself to myself (laughs) (laughs) the short version is it's gonna suck but it gets better (laughs) ldr yeah yes well uh we want to thank you ryan for taking time out and uh, joining us and um whenever you got something else if you can do it come back all right i promise Okay. The Ryan Redcorn promise. <laughs> uh, in the meantime, how do people follow you if they want to do like keep up with what you're doing? Do you... you know, I had enough of Twitter, so I deleted my yeah. my Twitter account, which is not even called Twitter anymore. Right. Uh, I'm hardly ever on Facebook because I got family members that are just out of pocket, and I don't even if I see what they're saying in that space, it makes me look at them funny on Thanksgiving. So those are two places you can't find me. I'm almost always probably way too much on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Just stay on Instagram. It's just it's just pictures. Yeah. I like pictures. It's like my algorithm is like centered around stupid jokes and memes and people getting hurt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like there's like, you know, you're never too old to laugh at somebody getting hit in the balls, I feel. Yeah. And if you're ever feeling bad about yourself. There's plenty of videos of people getting hit in the balls <laughs> and you can just, you know, be happy about your life. 
because you're not getting hit in the balls and somebody else is and you can laugh at their pain with the rest of us <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah uh, wise words wise, wise words, words. Um, yes. from him to us all yes yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh so on that note just the uh, listeners to keep up with us on all of our socials on facebook you can find us on real indigenous podcast on the former twitter you can find us at real underscore indigenous and on instagram you can find us at real indigenous pod don't forget to rate and review check out our patreon and um as usual we will see you at the same indigenous time on this same indigenous channel and remember don't just keep it real keep it real indigenous i think we did it i think we might have i think we might have gotten that one yeah <laughs> well thanks to you ryan I should have I should have conducted the orchestra. Yes. <laughs> yes, darling <laughs> <laughs>